This is a National Arts Center podcast. Find more great NAC podcasts on the performing arts at nacpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Center on iTunes and subscribe for free. In August, a hundred years ago, the First World War began. The first Canadian troops arrived in Britain in October 1914. This year, in October 2014, the National Arts Centre Orchestra will visit Britain to commemorate the occasion. The orchestra will perform concerts in Edinburgh, Nottingham, London, Bristol and Salisbury. Salisbury Plain was the area where the Canadians gathered to train before setting off for the front, and the orchestra will play a concert in Salisbury Cathedral. In London, the orchestra will perform a choral work, Ballad of Canada, by Malcolm Forsyth. The text consists of works by Canadian poets, including a setting of John McRae's famous wartime poem in Flanders Fields. Every year, on November the 11th, Canadians are reminded of the sacrifices made by those old soldiers and those who have come and gone in more recent wars. There are no more living First World War veterans, but every family touched by that war has its own ancestral memories, sustained through family histories, old letters and photographs. My first exposure to the First World War came at a very early age. Dominating the living room of my grandmother's house was a picture of her brother, William Johnson, always referred to as Uncle Will. It was a typical formal portrait, taken about 1906, when he would have been 21. He was my grandmother's eldest brother, and he was killed in September 1916 during the Battle of the Somme. Both of my grandfathers fought in the First World War. My father's father was at the Battle of Mont in 1914 and served throughout the war first in the Medical Corps, and later in the Royal Engineers. My mother's father joined in 1915 and served with the Manchester Regiment in France and the Middle East. Both grandfathers were in action on the first day of the Somme on July 1, 1916. Both miraculously survived, although my maternal grandfather lost three brothers during the war. When she learned that we were coming to Canada in 1957, my father's mother sang to me, Maple Leaf Forever. She still remembered all the words and the Canadians from the two world wars fought in her lifetime. My first exposure to Canadian military history came in 1964 when I joined the Canadian Army as a bandsman. My first posting, Lord Strathcona's Horse, a tank regiment, was originally raised as a cavalry unit for the Boer War by Lord Strathcona, better known as Donald Smith, the man who drove in the last spike of the Canadian Pacific Railway. In 1967, during Expo in Montreal, we met his grandson, a patron of the arts and music lover, who was delighted to learn that about a dozen band members also played with the Calgary Philharmonic. 
The band was stationed in Calgary at Curry Barracks, named after Arthur Curry, the most successful Canadian Army commander of the First World War. Every year, we played for the regimental birthday of another tank regiment, the Fort Garry Horse, who were based close by. A highlight of those festivities was the chance to meet and listen to stories told by Harker Strachan, a member of the Fort Garrys who won the Victoria Cross at the Battle of Cambrai, leading a cavalry charge. You always expect heroes to be larger-than-life Errol Flynn types, but Strachan was a slim, unassuming man who always stressed the humorous side of army life. He certainly never boasted about his exploits. In 1968, the Strathcona's band amalgamated with the band of the PPCLI, who moved down from Edmonton. All we had to do was change uniforms. Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry was formed in 1914 by Andrew Hamilton Galt and has become, for good reason, one of the best known of all Canadian regiments. Galt himself donated $100,000 of his own money, a huge amount in 1914. And Princess Patricia, granddaughter of Queen Victoria and daughter of the Governor-General, the Duke of Connaught, designed and embroidered the regimental colour that was carried into battle throughout the war. There is a statue of Hamilton Galt, in uniform, wearing his steel helmet, outside the National Arts Centre, facing the War Memorial. Galt was wounded several times during the war and lost a leg. He could easily have retired, but continued to serve until after the war. The original complement of Patricia's consisted of 31 officers and about 1,100 other ranks. They were a mixed bag, including prospectors, trappers, guides, cowhands, and farmers. Most were British-born, although about a third of the officers were Canadian. Some of the officers and men had no military experience at all, but most of them had seen service in India or South Africa. So the combination of military service and hard manual labour made them a pretty tough bunch of characters. The regiment, which was really only a large battalion, left Ottawa on October the 28th, 1914, having marched from Lansdowne Park to the train station, now the convention centre across the canal from the National Arts Centre. The train took them as far as Quebec, where the first Canadian contingent, comprising about 30,000 men, gathered for training at Valcartier. The Patricias camped across the river in Levy. After a month or so, the Canadians set off for Europe. Off the coast of Newfoundland, they were joined by another ship, carrying the first detachment of the Newfoundland Regiment, destined for a day of legendary horror on July the 1st, 1916. On October the 16th, the Patricias disembarked at Plymouth and were soon in their new camp on Salisbury Plain. Salisbury Plain was a good choice for a few, perhaps unforeseen, reasons. The weather during that fall and winter was the worst in memory. The facilities for the troops were completely inadequate, and the initial training rudimentary at best. The whole area became a sea of mud, and the soldiers remained wet for weeks on end. All good practice for the awful conditions they would experience in France and Flanders. Despite all this, the general mood at the beginning of the war was optimistic. Men were lining up in their thousands trying to join up. Two of the most popular songs associated with the war, It's a Long Way to Tipperary, and Mademoiselle from Armentier, 
are incorporated into the regimental march of the Patricius. Has anyone seen the colonel? After training on Salisbury Plain, the Canadians, including the Patricias, headed across the Channel. The Patricias arrived on January the 7th and took over a line of trenches near Ypres. The trenches were in terrible shape. Men were up to their knees in water. They were soon welcomed to the front by constant attacks by snipers, grenades and trench mortars. The only way to survive was to crawl through the mud and keep your head down, because the line at Ypres formed a bulge or salient that was vulnerable to attack on three sides. The Battle of Ypres in April 1915 has become one of the proudest events in Canadian military history. The line was held despite attacks by poison gas and heavy artillery. John McRae wrote his famous poem after the battle, during which a close friend of his, Alexis Helmer, was killed. My wife's grandfather, George Jones, was badly gassed during that battle, and, like so many of those who survived the war, spent the rest of his life with permanent breathing problems. Ypres, like every other battle of the First World War, was a mass slaughter under appalling conditions. It was to be repeated with minor variations for the rest of the war. On the Somme, at Vimy Ridge, at Passchendaele, right down to the last day of the war, when the Canadians entered the Belgian town of Mont scene of the first big battle in 1914. Along with jaunty melodies designed to cheer up the soldiers and their worried families back home, other more sentimental songs soon became very popular. One of the best known is Roses of Picardy. Here it is, sung by Peter Dawson. By the poplars, calling it with the sea blue eyes. 
is watching and longing and praying where the long white roadway lies and the song stirs in the silence as the wind in the boughs above she listens and starts and trembles tis the first little song of love roses of shining in Picardy in the hush of the silver dew roses are flowering in Picardy but there's never a rose like you time and our roads may be far apart but there's one rose that dies not in Picardy Ivan Novello, author of many successful morale-boosting shows during the Second World War, also wrote one of the best-loved popular songs of the Great War, Keep the Home Fires Burning. Here it is, sung by John McCormick in a recording from 1917. Yeah. 
Despite the losses, which affected almost every family with a son in uniform, most people displayed a level of stoicism, which is almost impossible to grasp today. One of the best-loved entertainers of the early part of the 20th century, the Scotsman Harry Lauder, lost his son, killed in action in 1916. In his memory, Lauder wrote one of his most uplifting and best-loved songs, Keep Right On to the End of the Road. And here it is, sung by Lorda himself. Every road through life is a long, long road filled with joys and sorrows too. As we journey on, how your heart may yearn for the things most to you with wealth and love to show but onward we must go keep right on to the end of the road keep right on to the end if the way be long let your heart be strong Keep right on round the bend If you're tired and weary Still journey on Till you come to your happy abode Where all you love and you dream
with a big stout heart to a long steep hill we may get there with a smile with a good kind thought and an end in view we can cut short many a mile so let courage every day be our guiding star The way be long, let your heart be strong. Keep right on round the bend. If you're tired and weary, still journey on till you come to your happy abode. Where all you love and your dreaming of will be there. There are many fine books written about the First World War. Of special interest to Canadian readers, I would recommend Vimy by Pierre Burton and Tapestry of War by Sandra Gwynne. Gwynne's book is particularly interesting because she weaves events in Europe with contemporary social and political movements in Canada. Martin Middlebrook's masterpiece, The First Day on the Somme, concentrates on individuals within units that saw action that day. So there's no need for me to attempt, within the confines of this podcast, a brief history of the war. One of the most moving experiences I can recommend for anyone interested in finding out more is to visit the First World War battlefields and cemeteries. In October 1999, I went with my wife to Germany to buy an instrument. And on the way back, before flying out of Paris, we spent a couple of days walking around the areas in France where our grandfathers and great-uncles had fought. The town of Albert is a good place to start. Nearby is the Tiepval Monument, which lists the names of the men killed on the Somme whose bodies were never found. Great Uncle Will's name is there. To see his name, and to remember the old photograph of the handsome young man hanging for all those years on my grandmother's wall, made me wish even more that I had known him. A few miles away, in a sleepy little village, is a small memorial tablet commemorating the men of Manchester and Liverpool who fought and died there. My maternal grandfather would have passed through that village in one of the few successful attacks of July 1st, 
1916. Uncle Will was killed not far away in Lewes Wood two months later. He was an old soldier by then, 31. One of the main objectives on the first day of the Somme battle was the town of Bapaume, nowadays just a short drive up the old Roman road from Albert. Like many of the best laid plans of the First World War, it was another example of wishful thinking. Wilfred Owen, whose poetry provides the text for Benjamin Britten's war requiem, was in the Manchester Regiment. It would be nice to know if my grandfather ever met him. They were certainly involved in some of the same operations. Owen's poem, The Parable of the Old Man and the Young, sums up the stupidity and the futility of the war. Here it is, read by Richard Johnson. So Abram rose and clave the wood and went and took the fire with him and a knife. And as they sojourned both of them together, Isaac, the firstborn, spake and said, My father, behold the preparations, fire and iron, but where the lamb for this burnt offering? Then Abram bound the youth with belts and straps and builded parapets and trenches there and stretched forth the knife to slay his son. When lo, an angel called him out of heaven, saying, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do anything to him. Behold, a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Offer the ram of pride instead of him. But the old man would not so, but slew his son and half the seed of Europe, one by one. Probably the greatest tragedy of July 1st, 1916, on a par for madness with the charge of the Light Brigade, was the attack of the Newfoundland Regiment at Beaumont Hamel. Here is Martin Middlebrook's account of it. The Newfoundlanders had heard the pre-attack bombardment, the explosion of the Hawthorne Redoubt mine, and then the German machine guns when the leading brigades made their attack. An anxious wait followed while wounded and rumour brought the news that the attack had not been successful. In his HQ dugout, Lieutenant Colonel Haddow, the English officer commanding the battalion, received his orders by phone from the brigade commander. The Newfoundlanders were to leave their present position as soon as possible and advance to the German front line. The first Essex on their right would also attack. Haddo asked questions. Were the German trenches held by the British or the Germans? He was told that the situation was uncertain. Was he to move independently of the Essex? Yes. Colonel Haddo must have been unhappy, but he had been given a direct order. The Newfoundlanders had to go 300 yards before reaching the British front line, and then a similar distance across no man's land. In view of the urgency of their orders, they went straight over the top from reserve trench instead of going to the front line by way of a congested communication trench. As soon as they appeared in the open, the German machine guns spotted them and opened fire. No artillery bombardment kept the Germans' heads down. No other targets distracted them, for the Essex had not appeared. They concentrated their fire on the Newfoundlanders advancing over open ground less than half a mile away. 
Before the men could even get into no man's land, they had to pass through several belts of British barbed wire. As the Newfoundlanders bunched together to get through the narrow gaps in the wire, the German machine gunners found their best killing ground. Dead and wounded men soon blocked every gap. But those still not hit struggled on, having to walk over their comrades' bodies. Those who survived to reach no man's land continued towards the German trenches, but they had no chance. The attack was watched by Private Cameron of the King's Own Scottish Borderers, a survivor of an early attack, who was sheltering in a nearby shell hole. He describes the scene. On came the Newfoundlanders, a great body of men, but the fire intensified and they were wiped out in front of my eyes. I cursed the generals for their useless slaughter. They seemed to have no idea what was going on. Only a handful of Newfoundlanders reached the German wire. There they were shot. The attack had lasted 40 minutes. Of those who attacked, 91% had become casualties. The Newfoundland Memorial Park, dominated by the bronze statue of a caribou, is staffed by young Canadian history students who take you over the ground and explain what happened. They show you letters, often hopeful and optimistic, written by the men on the eve of the battle. Sections of the trenches are still visible. A short distance away is the graveyard, full of young men, many not yet 20, who, if they had lived, would have made Newfoundland and Canada a better place. Visiting the Somme, it soon becomes apparent that you don't really have to look for the war cemeteries. Drive down any country lane and you'll find one. Some are small, others more elaborate. The South African Memorial is on the edge of an area so saturated with ordnance from the war that it is still unsafe to enter. After spending the night in Bapaume, we drove the next day up to Vimy. Again, we found the site well-staffed by Canadian students who showed us the trenches and the tunnels and explained some of the details of the battle. The ridge itself is quite spectacular, as is the monument. You can see for miles. And it makes you realize the tremendous achievement of the Canadians who captured it in 1917. A day or two exploring battlefields, and especially the miles of cemeteries, make most of our present worries seem pretty insignificant. You spend most of the time weeping as you ponder not just the sacrifice, but the unbelievable waste and stupidity that erased the better part of a generation. It has been said that our country came of age during the First World War. Canada's huge contribution to the final success under independent Canadian command and the loss of over 60,000 dead and thousands more wounded or maimed for life seems a huge price to pay for nationhood. Canadians fought and died almost to the last minute of the war. The poet Wilfred Owen was killed a week before the end. His mother received the telegram announcing his death on November the 11th as the church bells were ringing in celebration of the armistice. I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said that there was never a good war or a bad peace. If you visit northeastern France and Flanders, you'll be inclined to agree with him. I expect the orchestra's tour to Britain will be a very emotionally charged experience 
because of this significant anniversary, which will bring old stories and memories to the fore. If you think the First World War is just another distant conflict, like the Battle of Waterloo, of little relevance to the present generation, which often seems to carry on as though the study of history is a waste of time, go to France or Flanders and tread the soil fertilized by the bones of your recent ancestors. You don't even have to go that far. Explore any city or small town in Canada, and you are sure to find a memorial listing the war dead. Step into any church, and you'll see more. Read the surnames on the plaques, and there's a good chance you will see your own. A nation remembers its war dead in general terms and on a large scale. Family memories are more specific. Every family involved in the war has its own memories and its own stories. They ought never to be forgotten.
This has been a National Arts Centre podcast produced in Ottawa by NAC New Media. Send us your comments and questions. Email us at nacpodcasts at gmail.com. Visit the podcast section of the iTunes store where you can rate and comment on this podcast. We love to hear from you. Remember, you can find more great NAC podcasts at necpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Centre on iTunes and subscribe for free. Until next time, goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre. Thank you.